up in just a moment, who we pushed from a Thursday. We also have a live stamps report with Matty Rose coming up in the next segment, getting you set for the Labor Day rematch between the Elks and the Stampeders. But let's go down the Atlas Pizza and Sports Bar guest hotline to kick things off on this Friday afternoon. No one I'd rather talk to on a Friday than our pal from MLB and NHL Network and the Cinephile Podcast. It's the one and only Adnan Ver. Good afternoon, Adnan. How are you, pal? I'm doing great, Logan. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing fantastic. And uh, usually I, I would have a, a set direction to go with you on these hits. But the nice thing is that there's so many different topics right now and so many different ways that we can go with you. I thought I'd give you the chance to pick where you want to start this one, Adnan. So I'm going to give you a couple topics, and you tell me where we want to start, okay? I love it. Dealer's choice. All right. Uh, MLB rule changes. NFL kickoff. Don't worry, darling, drama at the Venice Film Festival or the Queen passing away. You get to choose. <laughs> I'll actually be the true MLB insider and go with the baseball rules first. I mean, hallelujah. Thank God. I mean, we know this sport is a great sport, but is in need of improvement and repair. And thank God all these guys got it done. I remember years ago at ESPN on Baseball tonight, and they said they'll never all get on the same page. It's too contentious. Uh, we all know the rancor between the Players Union and Major League Baseball. They'll never agree on rule changes. And they said specifically, you know, both the hitters and the pitchers will never agree on a pitch clock. I remember having this conversation with the likes of Kurt Schilling or Mark Teixeira or Rick Sutcliffe. Like, it's never going to happen. Like, you, you might see the minor leagues at the major league level. No. Like, players are conditioned to do things at their own level. Pitchers do not want to have a clock telling them what to do. And hitters like to step out as much as they want to. And I used to always say – in a sport without a clock, that's what makes baseball timeless. You know, in other sports, you can kill the clock. In mm-hmm. baseball, you can't. You've got to finish the whole game, all those 27 outs. Now, the fact the clock is in, I think, is tremendous news. And I've come around on it. I, at first, I said, no, no clock, right? That's what makes it unique. But then, when you watch baseball, I'll never forget, game one of last year's World Series took four and a half hours, and it was a terrible baseball game. And that's the World Series. That, that's as good as it gets. That's what's supposed to be. That's the ideal, and it was awful. There just wasn't much action, and it took forever and the extra commercials and the rest of it. So I said, if this can make the game better and speed it up, I'm all for it. During the pandemic, I rewatched Game 7 of the 92 NLCS. My dear friend, Sean McDonough, called the Sid Bream game, right? The famous slide, the throw from Barry Barnes. That game, Logan, took, I think, two hours and 32 minutes. It was an incredible game. It was a fast pace. It was incredible. And I said, baseball can still be that as long as we speed things up. So I just say hooray to the players' union, to the pitchers, to the hitters, to the league, to Rob Manfred. I can't believe we got it done with regards to the pitch clock. Now, the shift. Mm-hmm. Again, I've come around on it. I used to say, why would you criticize intelligence? Like, the people who came up with the shift were smart enough to realize, huh, there's certain tendencies for certain players. Rather than exploit that, let's exploit their tendencies. And the shift, by the way, goes way back. I mean, Keith Oberman did a bit today in his pod. It goes back to like the 1870s. They were shifting on guys. Of course, very famously, the Ted Williams shifts, three guys on the right side of the infield. But I started to change, again, when I used to talk to former players, they go, you know what? You're robbing the game of the fun. And Theo Epstein, who is as smart as it gets, he himself came out last year and said, you know what? When I watch baseball, I realize it's a smarter game. It's never been smarter, but it's not as aesthetically pleasing as it once was. And the shift is part of that. You want to be able to see guys get base hits on plays that should be base hits. You don't want to see four outfielders or three guys on one side of the field. We all grew up playing Little League Baseball and playing the game a certain way. And it kind of reminds you of the NBA outlawing illegal defense, right? There used to be a way you could mm-hmm. play. 
Eventually, they said, no way. So I, I think, honestly, dude, I, I, I didn't think this day would come. Like, last night, they all said these changes will be ratified for sure. When the lockout was resolved, they talked to these rule changes and said it was a, you know, a, a, a formality. I'll be honest. I was scared the whole time. I said, I don't know if this is actually going to get done. This almost feels too good to be true. So I think April, by the way, could be a quagmire. Get ready for players getting mad and pitchers stepping off the rubber. And, and by the way, for those who don't know the rules, if the, pitch, you know, if the hitter steps out, that's an automatic strike. If, if the batter steps off the rubber, excuse me, if the pitcher steps off the rubber more than twice in an at-bat, that's an automatic ball. So get ready for absolute chaos in April because you know certain guys are not going to adjust well, are going to get angry, get tossed. So that'll be fun. But ultimately, it's great for the game. It really is. The interesting one to me was one that I, I frankly didn't know and felt a little silly that maybe I didn't know. I didn't know we were calling for larger bases, but apparently that was a unanimous decision that got passed in all of this too. Was that something that you had heard about, Adnan? Yeah, Bill Ripken had said to me that a while ago. He was like, you know, this will really help the game. I said, why? From 15 inches to 18 inches, this gives infielders more distance between themselves and base runners in a bit to decrease collisions, but it also decreases base-to-base distance by four and a half inches. So theoretically, you'll get more guys reaching first base, infield singles, et cetera. It energizes the sport um, and hopefully some more steals, right? We all missed all those plays. So I think it'll, it'll hopefully enhance um, a larger, more exciting game of baseball. Uh, curious, too, uh, when you think of – I'm trying to think of names over the years that would have hated this pitch clock because there's a long history of – of guys that just went at their old, you know, their own pace in between pitches. We've had pitchers that that liked the quick pace and were, you know, hey, quick, I'm ready with the ball, let's go on the next pitch. And you know, for for years, Adnan, we had batters who, you know, consistently stepped out of the box, did everything they could to throw those guys off. When it comes to pitchers who you think would hate this rule change, who comes to mind for you? You know, I think it was Steve Traxel because he was the one who gave up McGuire's 62nd home run, which I mentioned because yesterday was the anniversary of him doing that way back in mm-hmm. 1998. Crazy to think about 24th anniversary. But Steve Traxel used to call him like the human rain delay. He took forever in between pitches. And a guy that I always loved who worked efficiently was Mark Burley. He was always fantastic. He was getting the ball and going for Blue Jay, White Sox, of course. So Steve Traxel is the one guy I thought of. him like, And also you, Darvish. He takes a long time in between pitches. So this is going to be an adjustment, I think, for you, Darvish. Dice K, another one. He used to take like 30 seconds. I'm like, bro, 15 seconds. Let's go. A couple of really interesting races uh, across the major leagues as we head into September. I'm curious who you think is under more pressure right now, the Yankees or the Mets? The Mets lead over the Braves is much slimmer, but the Yankees also held a, a massive lead in this AL East, and they now find themselves just four and a half up on Tampa and six up on Toronto. Uh, things have soured for both New York teams over the last month or so. Yeah, it's crazy. I think there's more pressure on the Mets because the Yankees still have that five-game lead. Yes, they're not playing their best baseball going into October, but if you win the division, you get the bye because we all know the Central Division champion isn't good enough to catch them. Mm-hmm. So, yes, it's a little bit precarious. It was a 15-and-a-half-game lead, but five games right now, massive series against the Rays starting tonight. But if you can rectify the ship, and you win that division, hey, take a breath, three versus six, four versus five, you're the two seed, hopefully you can come out guns blazing, and then potentially Yankees-Astros ALCS. For the Mets, it's much more frustrating, I honestly think, because you played really good baseball. You know, since I'm playing like 630, 640 baseball, that's pretty good. The Braves are playing 715 baseball. It's just out of this world how good the Braves have been 
as they're winning games better than a two out of three series clip. When you're winning like 72% of your games, it, it, it feels historic. And if it was over the entire season, it would be. But the Braves are after a slow start and all of a sudden just have been guns blazing. And that's, I think, incredibly frustrating if you're a Mets fan because you go, we haven't had a swoon. The Yankees had a terrible August. They were one of the worst teams in baseball in August. And that's why they're in this situation. They're still five games up. The Mets have played above average baseball. There's been no discernible slump. It's just the Braves are red hot. They can't lose these guys. The Mets have been better than the Braves, by the way, head-to-head. They've won the season series. And Atlanta has just been tenacious. So I think it's more concerning for the Mets. Imagine you lose the division lead. They had a division lead, Logan, from April 12th to September 7th. Like five months of the year, you've been in first place, or at least a share of first place. Yeah. And then you lose it in September, and all of a sudden you say to yourself, wow, we got to go Mets-Padres in the wild card round? Like, oh, I think it'd be a real blow for the Mets if that were to happen to them. Well, and you know whose fault this all is, obviously. Jerry Seinfeld nailed it. It's the, it's the Trumpets' fault. That's obviously the reason that this thing's gone south for the Mets. What an old man yelling at clouds take. Let's have some fun in baseball here, Jerry. You've watched it long enough to know that this is a fun tradition for your closer. I can't get over this guy blasting the Mets over the trumpet. Awful. I couldn't agree with you more. I love Seinfeld, but that is a horrible take. First of all, when Timmy Trumpet did the trumpet live, they won that game. They won the next game. Then they won the other game. They won three straight games. They were on a three-game winning streak, okay? So the trumpet actually helped them. The night before they had lost the game, when Timmy Trumpet was there in attendance, and they lost by one run, he hung around. He goes, I'll stay for another game. Just do the live trumpet. All right, cool. It's like, you know, Pink Floyd one night only. Guess what? We're doing two nights now. Okay, sure. So the trumpet hung out the second night. Then Timmy did his thing, and they won the game. So it's, it's an absurd take by Jerry. I, I understood what he's trying to say that you're celebrating prematurely. Uh, again, as Keith Oldman once said, premature jocularity. But it's wrong. He, I think he likened it to the Baja Men in 2000. But that he doesn't sure make sense did. Because I, I think that was game four of the 2000 Subway Series. Sure was. Which me and my boy Cabby, we were, yeah, we were at game three of the Subway Series. Very famously, Benny Agbayani, the base game-winning hit. Mets won that game. Tim Robbins and Susan Sarandon were two rows in front of me and Cabby, high-fiving. Susan wasn't as friendly as Tim Robbins. Tim Robbins was great. We're like, dude, we love Jacob's Ladder. He was awesome. Great guy. Um, and so... They're already down. Like the, yeah. the reason they lost is because game one, Timo Perez is horrible base running. Jeter made that outstanding play, gun him out the plate. Game two, I think they won by one run as well. Uh, and game five was won by two runs. And game four, famously, Jeter let off with a home run. So it was not because of the Baja men letting the dogs out. Who? 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 That they lost. It's because there were close games. The Yankees were better. They won in five. This time, it's not Timmy Trumpet. That was, honestly, one of the coolest moments of the baseball season. A live rendition of Narco? Are you kidding me? Like, I was actually terrified he was going to jinx him. I was worried mm-hmm. that Diaz was going to blow it. Instead, he was lightened as always. So, Timmy Trumpet delivered. Do not blame the trumpet. Well, and what's, I've been trying to think about this since he had those comments because I, I so vehemently disagreed with them. And, of course, when you think about it, you think about, you know, Rivera coming out of the pen and, and how famous that was for years at Yankee Stadium. But I, I sat here and I thought, man, that's one of the great things about baseball that no other sport can replicate. There is no equivalent in pro sports, Adnan, of the closer coming out from the bullpen and making that walk to the mound. Let's like let's have some fun with it. I think more guys should be doing this. I think the intimidation factor is off the charts. I think the fans love it. And like you said, even here in Calgary, I watched that replay of Timmy Trumpet playing him out from the bullpen. I don't know how many times. I love it. No, we were speaking the same language, man. Like, even the night before when he did the seventh inning, like, taking it to the ball game, I thought was riveting. 
And like my son, Adin is 11. He can't stand sports. He loves Timmy Trumpet. Like he hears me watching quick. He's like, Oh, it's that song again. Like he, he's into the mess yeah. just because of Timmy Trumpet. Like there, there are non-sports fans, non-baseball fans who are loving this because of what a spectacle it is. And it continues, like you said, a really cool tradition in baseball. Enter Sandman for Rivera, which is always hysterical because he likes Christian rock. He's the last <laughs> guy in the world that would listen to heavy metal music, but it stuck to Mo, and it was such an emblem for him. Um, obviously, Hell's Bells for Trevor Hoffman, yep. which they've now brought back. I think Ryan Helsley's the closer. I believe he came up the other day to Hell's Bells. So it's it's always a question. Like if you and I were ball players, what would be our walk up music? Similarly for a closer. What's your song when you come in? Eric Gagne, I don't remember the song. It might have been Thunderstruck, but I remember they would flash on the scoreboard, game over. And, like, it was an intimidation thing. Eric Gagne, Canadian, 84 straight times, shut down the team with that save streak, game over. Like, whatever the music is, it becomes an anthem for the team, and, and it's legit. Like, you ask those Mets players, Pete Alonso, Frankie Lindor, like, bro, when we hear Narco, we know it's game over. I, I remember – you know, a couple of months ago talking to you about what a disaster the White Sox have been. And now somehow on September 9th, I'm sitting here talking with you and they and the Minnesota Twins are somehow a game and a half back for catching the Cleveland Guardians in the AL Central. Cleveland's been all sorts of putrid. I think they're three and seven in their last 10. But the White Sox with a negative 14 run differential somehow have a playoff spot in sight. I, I'm not sure I saw this coming, Adnan. No, it's such a disappointment. It just shows how frustrating it is when leagues and teams are spread up into divisions and one division is better than the other. And this feels like it's been a plague for years now. Like, when's the last time the AL and NL Central were truly competitive for the best divisions in baseball? Every year you go, at least two or three teams in that division are going to be absolute luggage. In the NL Central, the Brewers, the division lead most of the year, Cardinals woke up, and that's it. Brewers are like eight and a half games. The other three teams are awful. Like the Reds, Cubs, and Pirates, brutal. Reds and Cubs are going to be 90 lost teams. Pirates, 100 lost teams. Meantime, the AL Central, the Tigers, Costa Alex Avila, his job, they thought they'd be a 500 team. They're going to get 90-plus losses. Royals are going to lose over 100 games. And then you got those three teams hovering around mediocrity. The Twins can't pitch nearly well enough. None of their starters goes deep into games. The White Sox have been hurt by injuries, inconsistency, and just underperformance. And the Guardians have some good starting pitching, but not nearly enough offense. But they have the magic of Terry Francona. So one of those teams is going to get in the playoffs. The only thing I can hope for is that whichever team does get in just gets blasted. Like, dude, mm-hmm. you have no business being here. You get in. Here's your participation trophy. Now get out of here. Because nobody thinks you're going to be a legit team that can win the World Series. So spare us and just go. So if it ends up being three, four, five, six, let's say the Guardians win the division, they're the three seed, and let's say the Blue Jays are the six, I hope Toronto just, just beats it right like two games. Bam, it's over. Get out of here. We don't need you. Because then it'll be more frustrating if a team who you feel like doesn't deserve to be in ends up winning the division. To the White Sox specifically, yeah, they've had injuries. There's no question about it. Their outfield's been banged up. They've missed guys. Luis Robert, Ila Jimenez, Tim Anderson has missed time, Jose Abreu, Yasmani Grandal, on and on and on. But ultimately, their horses haven't produced when they should be. And any other team, they would have fired that manager. But Jerry Reinsdorf and Tony Russo, it's like a seat out of the notebook, right? He's the one that got away. He had to bring him back somehow. He can't get rid of Ryan Gosling. I asked Tom Berducci, I said, why don't they fire LaRusso? Because Reinsdorf will not do it in season. He just will not embarrass him. They may make a managerial change in the offseason, but not in season. Now, imagine if they actually win the season, win the division. That means LaRusso comes back for another year. Please. We all know Tony's not the right man for the job. And that team... Honestly, they should be ashamed of themselves. That's a game and a half. They should be winning that division by 10 games. 
It is uh, it is unbelievable that we're even here having this conversation. Adnan Verk with us, our MLB NHL Network uh, pal, and of course the Cinephile Podcast, uh, joining us here on Sportsnet today. Let's switch things over to uh, some NFL football. How about that for uh, a night one statement from the Buffalo Bills? I, look, I, I didn't think going into SoFi, you know, for, against the championship caliber team like the Rams was an easy task for the Bills, but. Man, they just picked up where they left off last year, Adnan. And that team can score at will when they want to. It was awesome to watch, Logan. It just it honestly brought back memories for me, just how bad I feel for Bills Mafia. The fact they lost that game against the Chiefs. I go, God, they deserve to win that game. They deserve better, especially since the Chiefs uh, were underwhelming in the Super Bowl. So mm-hmm. um, good for Buffalo playing so well last night. And you're right. The takeaway is not that Josh Allen and Stephon Diggs and the rest of that offense would be so high octane. The takeaway is how good their defense was. Like, they made life miserable for Matthew Stafford, the turnovers or the interceptions and the fumble and all the rest of it. So I, I thought it was a completely dominant performance by Buffalo. And there's no question for me, they're a Super Bowl contender this season. They, they were a year ago. I just hope when you come to the precipice and you do not, you know, be successful, hopefully you can come back and be resolute. Some teams get that close to the cliff, they go over the cliff. They go into despair, that's it. Both of the Bills say, hey, guys, we were this close. Coin flip, we would have won that game. We're better than everybody else. This is our year. Let's go forward and be strong. Hell of a statement against the Rams. And like Sean McVay said, it's on him. Like, that's a pretty humbling way for Super Bowl champion at home to get dummied like that. Awfully impressive by Buffalo and very disappointing for the Rams. Yeah, it's going to be a bit of a wake-up call for that group who – for you know all of pretty much their entire careers that group was you know close but no cigar you know could Matt Stafford actually do something outside of Detroit well guess what you guys have done it now and that's what it's going to be like week in week out for the Rams I think not that they're going to get beat like that but I think teams are going to put up that kind of effort against them weekly this year so too man like I I, one of the rare predictions I swear that I've ever gotten right I called the Rams to win the Super Bowl at the start of the season. We can check the tape. Me and Michael and Barty and the GM shuffle. But if you ask me this year, I have zero confidence in them repeating. I'm like, no, no. I think the Stars aligned last year. Their top players played at their best. Aaron Donald, notably. Stafford stepped up when need be. Woods and Cup, et cetera. Although Woods got hurt, obviously, later in the season. But this year, they look to me like, meh, that lack of depth is going to hurt them. Like, you can be strong for a certain amount of time, but year to year, the fact that you don't have horses up and down your lap that will hurt you that ultimately you will get exposed and Jalen Ramsey getting exposed yesterday as well so I also think the fact they're in the toughest division in football I mean that that's just going to be a bear trying to run through that NFC West you think the Ravens may have sorry go ahead there although the Seahawks could be a relative week from this year so that's the one absence of last year you go wow Hmm. NFC West is so hard although I think Seattle could be in for a tough season we'll find out Monday Night Football of course Russell Wilson's return with the Broncos yeah looking forward to that one for sure big uh, schedule boon win for the the NFL on that one. Uh, uh, do you think the Ravens make a mistake here with Lamar Jackson? He's one of the few guys that represents himself. Uh, he's going to go into his final year of his rookie contract without a deal and without an extension. The Ravens have kind of been criticized for how they've handled this whole thing and how they sort of balked when their division rivals, the Browns, handed all that money to Deshaun Watson and how it maybe complicated their negotiations with Lamar Jackson. I just. I find it hard when you're playing hardball with a guy that's got an MVP trophy on his resume. Yeah, I don't get it, man. I, I just think you got to pay your thoroughbreds, right? The top guys always get paid. And, yes, yeah, sometimes it's stupid money, and sometimes it's too much money that's guaranteed. It's too much money up front. But guess what? 
you you robbed him early because the rookie contract, you're at the behest of the team. Exactly. So even if you felt like what you're giving is an overpay, you saved money on what he's done for your franchise so far. There's no question he is a top five, top ten quarterback in football. He's the face of your franchise. Without him, you're not going to win. He sells tickets. He takes care of merchandise, season tickets, all the rest of it. So just pay him. You know what I mean? If it's a little more than you want, pay him. Because now you got a guy who's disgruntled, who's frustrated, and he could have an Aaron Jones type situation. Maybe he goes out and has the best season of his career. Okay, but now it's going to cost you millions upon millions more. They could have just locked him up and got it done. And like you said, the fact that he represents himself, pretty rare and unique in the sport. Uh, it wouldn't be for me. I'd rather have an agent take care of it, have to handle all the, the good news and the bad news. But I credit Lamar for doing it. It must be awfully frustrating for him to not get the deal done after what he's done for Baltimore, for the city, for the Ravens. I hope he has a great year. I hope this does not prove to be a season-long distraction, because sometimes that does happen for certain players. They're so frustrated, they just can't get out of their own way. i got to ask you about your Eagles heading into week one. They've got a matchup against the Lions. Uh, they were the darlings of this year's uh, Hard knock series, but of course, still not uh, anywhere near a contender. I did some looking uh, ahead of our chat today, Adnan, and four sport books that I looked at, three of them had the Eagles winning the NFC East, one of them had the exact same odds to win the NFC East as the Dallas Cowboys. That has to be an unusual feeling for you. Yeah, especially when I looked at the Cowboys head-to-head. I was reading Pro Football Focus. The Eagles have lost 13 of 20 of their last meetings against the Cowboys, and a few of those meetings have been like horrible losses. Dallas has won by like double digits by 20 or more points. So I, I worry about being you know, this whole debate of the hunter versus the hunted. Like I, I would prefer if Dallas is the favorite – and Philly can surprise. Like last year, they were a surprising nine-win team and a playoff team. Got off to a terrible start. Defense kept getting gouged. Offensively, Sirianni finally figured it out. Let's run the ball more. Absolutely, we can run the ball with abandon. And all of a sudden, their entire identity changed, and they were better defensively as well, and, and things were able to work out. So when all of a sudden people start calling your number, I'm like, eh. But, but I get why. I would like to think 10-7, and seven, but if they win the division, it could be 12-5. and five. Hertz has to have a demonstrably better year. He's got to prove he's more of a passer than just a runner. But he's never had better weapons than this. you got A.J. Brown, Devontae Smith together. you got Dallas Goddard, terrific tight end. No excuses there. Defensively, Fletcher Cox is in decline, but they got Javon Hargrave, Josh Sweat. Um, you know, they've, they've made other moves. James Bradbury, they, they signed from the Giants, one of their corners. Him and Slade together, that's their best corner tandem since Asante Samuel and Sheldon Brown. Austin's line is still a little creaky, but Jason Kelsey, Lane Johnson, those guys have been studs for a while. And you hope that other guys like become playmakers. Nicobe Dean was a a first-round projected pick, the Eagles got him in the third round as a linebacker, which is incredibly rare for them to get a linebacker that high and thought of that high. So I think that they're going to be, at the very least, a playoff team. I do think they're going to be in contention, and I do like them to battle for the division. But I'm with you. I, I'm a little cautious when I see these sports books betting big on the Eagles. I'm like, uh. Also, what really helps them, the schedule. Everything I've read is that they've got on paper quite possibly the easiest schedule in football and definitely the first four games out of the gate could not be easier. I mean, the Lions right away, the Steelers as well. Week four, the Jaguars at home. Phillies should be 4-0 or 3-1 without question with that schedule to start. Okay, let's end things off on a couple of fun notes here. Uh, on the Cinephile podcast you guys released this week, you talked a, a bit about Harry Styles and some of the, the words around his acting career that's sort of taken off the last little while, but of course... All the drama was in Venice over uh, the film that he stars in, uh, Don't Worry Darling. Um, it's getting absolutely killed in ratings. I think IMDb had it at a 1 out of 10. Rotten Tomatoes has it at like a 44%. There's all this drama. 
with Olivia Wilde. And I think the best way that someone uh, I saw on Twitter describe it, Adnan, was I'm not actually excited to see this movie. I'm excited for someone to make the movie about how they made this awful movie. <laughs> That's a pretty funny line. That's almost like uh, Apocalypse Now, which I do think is a flawed, great movie. Hearts of Darkness is quite yes. possibly an even better movie, the documentary, which is so riveting. Sean Coppola just basically having a nervous breakdown. But, yeah, just, just nuts. My friend Clara Atkins joining the podcast. She broke in all the drama. Harry Styles and Spitgate, him and, uh, him and Evans. Chris Pine. That, yeah. You know, yeah. Sorry, yeah, Chris Pine, not Susan. I don't want to say Chris Evans. Chris Pine, back and forth. The fact that Florence Pugh doesn't want to do any press now moving forward, I believe it's going to play at the New York Film Festival, and she has said she's not going to show up. So no love lost. Her and Olivia Wilde, Harry Styles ends up being the black sheep. Nobody likes their relationship. It's uh, unusual because Olivia Wilde made Booksmart, which was a terrific movie. And I thought, wow, she's an actress that has a real sharp eye as a director. But this movie, like you said, is getting panned. It's more about the drama off screen rather than the the actual action on screen. So uh, hopefully some more juice coming down the pipe. Uh, and I do have to ask you about this because I'm just I'm generally curious in a lot of your takes in life. Uh, where do you where do you fall on the uh, the royal family? Were you in mourning the last 24 hours over the Queen passing? Uh, you're a Canadian at heart, and of course, our our loyalties lie with the royal family, Adnan. Yeah, it's funny because here in America, people mock the whole concept of the monarchy and imperialism and all the rest of it. But you're right. At heart, I'm a proud Canadian. I look at the queen and our money, and uh, my mom, more importantly, she moved from Pakistan to London when she was 10. So all of her family is in England. I feel like she's a true Brit at heart. So I said, for my mom, I had to check on my mom. She said she was, she was all down about it. She's like, you know, it's, it's been I said, Mom, it's a good run. Come on, 96. She said, no, no question. I'm going to miss her, though. Definitely seemed like she had a good sense of humor about her, which isn't something you can say about a queen. But I thought she was very down-to-earth, as these monarchs go. I think the best moment of the day, though, was all the Reggie Jackson tweets. I mean, just fantastic. The fact that there was... The picture of him from Naked Gun saying, all right, Reggie, you got her. And then later on, him, of course, tweeting, finally, I've been exonerated. It wasn't me. Uh, that honestly was probably the most educating part of my day. And I saw someone tweet, if you're between the ages of 40 and 60, you should be laughing hard at these. And I said, yeah, that makes sense. Because I said to a 35-year-old girl, and she had no idea what I was talking about. But if, <laughs> if you're in that age group, which I know you're not, but you're movie savvy, so you True. get the reference to yes. the Naked Gun. I must kill the queen. So good. Uh, Almost as good as our chats are every week. Adnan, you're the best, man. Thanks for this. Have a great weekend, pal. Looking forward to doing it next week. Thanks, Logan. Great job as always. Thanks for being flexible. We'll talk next week, pal. Take care, pal. There you go. Adnan Verk, MLB Network, NHL Network, and of course, the Cinephile Podcast, their latest episode dropping Wednesday afternoon. You can get it wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, Always fun to chat with Adnan on a variety of topics. And yes, uh, his Philadelphia Eagles taking on the Detroit Lions this weekend, uh, depending on where you look at the sports books. A lot of people taking the Eagles to win that division. We'll see if that pans out. That's a lot. As a longtime Eagles fan, uh, I know Adnan has his doubts about that. Always appreciate checking in with Adnan Verk on a Friday. We'll take a break. Come back on the other side. The uh, CFL week kicking off tonight ahead of a triple header on Saturday that ends off in our provincial capital between the Elks and the Stampeders. Let's get a live Stamps report with Matty Rose. That's coming up next here on Sportsnet 960 The Fan. Back to Sportsnet today on Sportsnet 960 The Fan. Week 14 of CFL action kicks off tonight in Montreal. 
The BC Lions and Montreal Alouettes kicking things off at 5.30 before a CFL triple header tomorrow that ends off with the Calgary Stampeders and Edmonton Elks with a Labor Day rematch, this time from Edmonton. Logan Gordon along with you. This is Sportsnet Today. Chatting a little Stampeders, Elks ahead of Saturday's matchup. We go down the Atlas Pizza and Sports Bar guest hotline. Welcome in our Stampeders insider, Matty Rose, to the program. Matty, good afternoon, pal. How are you? Hi, hello. Doing well. How are you? I'm doing great, pal. Uh, looking forward to tomorrow night. Should be a good one between the Stamps and the Elks. We've got... The depth charts out for the Stampeders ahead of tomorrow's game. And I guess the big news heading into this one will be uh, a veteran face in that receiving core who won't be with the team for the foreseeable future as Kamar Jordan hits the six-game injured list. Yeah, Kamar Jordan going to be on the six-game injured list for the foreseeable future. Like you mentioned, uh, he finished that last game against Edmonton on Labor Day, but then we didn't see him at practice, and he went for some imaging on Thursday was dealing with a thigh injury and ended up getting put on the six-game injured list. So not a good sign for the Calgary Stampeders, to say the least. Uh, Reggie Bagleton has really kind of caught fire lately, so that helps soften the blow a little bit. Trey Odoms-Dukes will make his Stampeders regular season debut in the slot there. Uh, another option would have been Sean Bain to come onto the roster as an American receiver, but Bain plays on the outside. He and Malik Henry kind of hold that outside uh, position down, especially with the way that Peyton Logan's been returning the ball lately. So um, they're going to make that change. We'll see what Odom's Dukes can bring to the table. He's the guy who's been around the team for a while. Uh, if you remember, when they came out of their bye, they had a whole bunch of guys who got sick, and one of them had pneumonia, and it was actually Odom's Dukes who had pneumonia and lost a bunch of weight over those couple weeks, um, but came back, was on the practice roster the whole time, and now he'll make his debut and he'll be asked to carry the mail in the slot here for the foreseeable future and a nice little test here up the road in Edmonton for his debut. Sticking with the changes that we'll see on Saturday, this is pretty much a weekly topic that we broach with you uh, ahead of games, Matt, but another change in the Stampeders secondary uh, Charles mm-hmm. Jamerson hitting the uh, the six game list as well. Uh, so another change there. Washington, Tremaine Washington, the former uh, member of the Edmonton Elks, will uh, will hop into that lineup at the halfback slot. But I mean, this is something that we've talked about all season long. It's really been a rotating cast when it comes to the Stampeders backfield on defense. Yeah, it, it really has been. Jamerson came in. He's played the last three games. He's been pretty solid. I thought his first game was probably his best game and then uh, had a couple of tough matchups, but against Edmonton played really solid as well. He's been good out on that field side after they had to move Jonathan Moxie onto the interior. Deontay Ruffin had gotten hurt with a hip injury. He's been able to return to the lineup. So it'll be Ruffin and Washington playing on the boundary side. Like you mentioned, Tremaine Washington was with the Elks last season. He was tied for the CFL lead in interceptions with the Elks. Didn't get re-signed signed in Ottawa, got cut, signed in Calgary when they started to deal with a lot of these injuries. And he's been on the practice roster for a little bit here as a few guys got healthy, but now they're getting injured again. With Jamerson out, we'll see Washington come back in, but it causes a whole shuffle. Uh, is going to stay at safety. We are going to see Kobe Williams stay at the Sam linebacker position, and they're going to get Brandon Dozier back. So that'll be something to keep an eye on. How much does Dozier play? He 
missed the first six games of the season with a muscle injury and then came back for one game, had a different muscle injury, and has been slowly working his way back. But he's coming off the six-game injured list early to play in this game. But he's listed as a backup. And then Brad Muhammad and John Moxie, who have been a tandem probably the most consistently uh, as far as just games played together all season long, I'd say Muhammad and Moxie are probably way up there as far as uh, guys who have been able to stay on the field all season long and have worked well in a tandem. So we'll see what Moxie and Muhammad can bring to the table out on the field side. But those are the changes that we'll see in the secondary. Uh, another little shuffle, another uh, instance where it's a, a completely new look. Uh, it's just the third game that Kobe Williams, or second game, that Kobe Williams is going to be playing at Sam Linebackers. So that's the, the little wrinkle here. I believe that we have seen this kind of setup with Ruffin, Washington, Buka, Muhammad, and Moxie before, but it was uh, Titus Wall or Darius Williams playing Sam. So, like I said, once again, another big shuffle, just something that the teams had to try and adapt to as the season's gone on. Talk to me a bit more about the Brandon Dozier situation. I was surprised to see him back in the lineup, but not in that starting role, especially, uh, as you mentioned, as a spot that Kobe Williams hasn't played a lot of. Is this just a case of uh, of Dave Dickinson and the coaching staff trying to ease Brandon back into this lineup and not wanting to put too much on his plate too quick coming back from two injuries already? Well, one of the things that Dozier does really well is special teams. So I expect he'll end up being a, a big part of the special teams type of game as far as punt coverage, kickoff coverage, doing some blocking, all those types of things. So I totally understood that having him healthy, he's a guy that even Mark Killam would really push for to be on the roster. But Kobe Williams is a guy that has been on the field when healthy. He started the first game at halfback and then he got hurt, and then Brad Muhammad kind of got a good hold of the halfback position, and the Sam linebacker was set. And I say Sam linebacker, but it's a position that's played by a defensive back. It's it's kind of the, the field linebacker, so it's a coverage and run game hybrid. And, and Kobe Williams is a guy that played at half, lost his job because he got hurt, was healthy, other people had played the position, and then – Boom, it was Titus Wall hurt. It was Darius Williams hurt. It was Brent Dozier still out. So Kobe Williams kind of got thrown into that role, and they liked what he did last week against Edmonton. So they'll give him another shot there. I think he's a guy that they like having on the field. It's just been an issue of availability with him that's kind of has him in and out of the lineup. But I think the team quite likes him, and that's why he'll get a look here at Sam. And listen, you could make a quick swap, and Dozier would be in there, no problem. You don't have any ratio issues there, but... I think that there could be a little bit of work in Dozier back in slowly, especially given, like I mentioned, that he was out for a while, came back for one game, and then he was hurt again. Jen with Matty Rose here ahead of the Stampeders and the Edmonton Elks Saturday night at Commonwealth Stadium up in Edmonton. Okay, those are, are some of the changes that we're going to see from the roster, man. But let's dive into some of the storylines uh, with people that have been in the lineup for a couple of weeks now. Of course, the main one is Jake Mayer, an opportunity for him at starting quarterback position once again. Uh, it was a slow start last week. He picked it up in the second half. Finding uh, Reggie Bagleton a couple of times really looked like a strong connection there. What are you looking to see from Jake Mayer in uh, another chance against the Elks this week? Just more of the same. Uh, I think that there's been really one play where I felt like he kind of panicked, and it wasn't even against Edmonton. It was a, a few games back where the pocket collapsed on him, and he kind of looked down. He had to tuck the ball, and it got a little chaotic. But apart from that, just more of the same. Keep Make sure you're taking care of the ball. 
Um, he's shown that he can air it out with that big, deep pass to Luther Hakunavanu last uh, game, one of two catches for Hakunavanu in that game. And I think Jake has that ability, and he's starting to get more confident with the offense. You could even see him get a little bit more aggressive, try and take a few shots. But he's a, a guy who does a good job of standing in the pocket, going through his reads. You know, he's not a guy, much like Bully by Mitchell, that's going to bail out on his reads halfway through and just try and run for seven, eight type of yards. He's going to try and put it in the hands of his playmakers. And I think Dave Dickinson has done a good job calling the game as well. Like you mentioned, the the connection to Reggie Bagleton has been good, but the key for me with Bagleton is he's getting the ball and then he's getting an opportunity to create yards after the catch. So they're hitting them on little bubble screens and things like that. Of the 57 yards that Bagleton had last game, 30 of them were after the catch. And, and he just does such a good job of kind of knifing through defenses. He's so strong, and he's got a pretty low center of gravity that he's hard to bring down once he gets the ball and is able to build a little bit of momentum. And you'd be surprised at the ability that he has to kind of stop, start, cut left to right, and then do all those type of things to make a defender miss. So that's been a, a real key to Jake Mayer having success. But I, I would say just more of the same. He threw the one pick last game. You moved past it. Um, still went 18 for 26 for you know 70% efficiency and had 238 yards. Just keep doing what you're doing. If Jake Mayer, um, the offense. If, if you're Jake Mayer, the offensive line I think has been quite good as well. Uh, getting Julian Good Jones back has been huge, and it looks like Sean McEwen. It feels like Sean McEwen is getting closer to a return as well. So um, that's something Dave Dickinson's been talking about for the last couple of weeks. And if they can get their all-star uh, caliber center back on the line as well, that'd be just an even bigger boost for Jake Mayer. How important has Kadeem Carey been to this offense? Uh, I know it was just 13 carries last week, but it was another 61 yards and a touchdown. It really, uh, if you look at things you know, on an equal basis, he's probably you know, the, your best bet to lead the league in rushing right now. I believe he's just shy of about 50 yards behind Brady Oliveira, who currently leads the league in rushing for the Blue Bombers. But uh, Brady's got four more games under his belt than Kadeem has. Mm -hmm. How important is, is he to what the Stampeders offense wants to accomplish every week, man? I think he's hugely important. He's a guy that just loves the game. So you know that whether it's standing in there and, and laying a block on Willie Jefferson for Jake Mayer, he's going to relish that opportunity and he's going to um, stand tall to the task and he's going to make sure that he stands in there and makes a play for his running back. If you need him to catch a ball out of the backfield and try and create some yards that way, he can do that as well. Like you mentioned, he had the 13 carries for 61 yards, but ends up catching all three of his targets for another 37 yards and 33 of them all after the catch. And some of them he's catching the ball behind the line and having to make a guy miss there. So Really, it's it's kind of closer to 100 yards of work that he would have done when the game was all said and done. Um, he's a guy that I just think having his smile and, and his attitude that, you know, he is going to put the best forward, so he expects you to put the best forward. He always props his guys up. And, and whether it's him in there or whether it's Peyton Logan or whether it's Diedrich Mills, you know that Kadeem Carey is going to be fired up for his guys. and. And he believes they have the most talented running back room in the in the nation. That's what he told me once. Um, and I think that he certainly believes that. And Peyton Logan has shown recently that he's a great option to spell off Kadeem Carey. We know his, he's fearless the way that he returns kicks. There's a few things he has to clean up there, but he's 
got a really aggressive mindset that I think the coaching staff likes and has shown that he can spell Kadeem Carey. So the key for Kadeem is certainly staying on the field. Um, but apart from that, he's he's been everything that this team has asked for. And like you mentioned, uh, especially with William Stanback going down very early in the season in week one against the Stampeders, you kind of felt that this was going to be Kadeem Carey's um, almost year to have that rushing title if he could grab it. And then we've seen some other guys have good seasons as well. Jamal Morrow, but he ended up getting hurt as well. And then you look in BC, Butler hasn't been able to put up as many yards as I don't think I thought he was going to. Uh, Oliver is a great running back and is so strong and, and hard to take down. He's probably the guy that Kadeem's racing with right now, but we'll continue to watch. And he's one of the most important pieces to the offense, without a doubt. How important will it be for this Stamps team to continue what they did on Labor Day when it comes to uh, getting to the passer? Taylor Cornelius, I thought, had some good moments in that game, but, man, was he ever under pressure. Flo looked great. Uh, Sean Lemon continues to impress. He continues to look like he's turning back the clock. I believe he had two sacks last week. That was one of their stronger suits in that win on Labor Day. Yeah, it was a pretty impressive performance. It was a couple of sacks for Sean Lemon, a couple of sacks for Fuller and Arimelade as they were doing some work off the edges. Uh, like you mentioned, Cornelius, I thought was fine. Um, one of the keys there is they did trade their center uh, during the week and had to make a little bit of a move there. And there were several instances where the ball was snapped low and Cornelius was kind of picking it up off his shoestrings and having a stampede on his back before he could even look up. So, that wasn't helpful for Edmonton. If Calgary can continue to get pressure like they did, that would be good. But the other wrinkle here is you don't have the 30,000 fans, the best crowd that we'd seen all year at McMahon Stadium, kind of creating a little bit of havoc on Cornelius and on that offense. Also, pretty undisciplined for Edmonton. That certainly helped uh, the Stampeders in a few cases. But overall, you just got to look at what the work at the work the defensive line was able to do, and you got to be impressed because. It wasn't just Flo. It wasn't just Lemon. Rose had a sack late in the game. Terrell McLean had a sack late in the game. Both proved to be very important. Romeo McKnight was able to get a paw on uh, the punt block that I thought really turned the game early on in the third quarter in the Stampeders' favor, and, and he's a backup defensive lineman as well. They had a great showing, a nice confidence-building showing. Now we'll see if they can back it up with another performance up in Edmonton, but I'd expect much of the same, man. Sean Lemon is, is a businessman this year, and he is going about his business in a way that I don't think we've seen for a couple seasons. He's having a really, really strong under-the-radar year. It was the two sacks. It was a forced fumble as well that Cam Judge recovered, knocking that one out of bounds. The Stampeders were able to put up some more points on that play, so yeah, the, the defensive line's been great. Uh, anytime that you can put pressure like that on a quarterback in the CFL, it puts you in a much better position to end up winning that game. Uh, last couple ones for you here, Maddie, ahead of Saturday's mm -hmm. game. Uh, very minor changes for the Elks heading in. Uh, their depth chart remains almost identical to the team that showed up on Monday against the Stampeders. Uh, this is a team that's gone through, uh, we've talked about it a lot, the, the long losing streak at home. Uh, they haven't beat the Stampeders this year. Uh, it feels like a good chance for the Stampeders to come and really put a, a statement game and finish off this season series against their provincial rivals. Yeah, I think so. You know, there was a couple guys on the offense that really did pop for me. Uh, Kevin Brown and Dylan Mitchell, both guys who have been signed since 
the new head coach, uh, Chris Jones, took over in Edmonton. I thought they really popped, but I think the other thing there is that now the Stampeders are going to look at them on the roster and say, okay, you got Mitchell, you got Darrell Walker, it's Lee Trey as their starting running back, but you're probably going to expect Brown for the most part. Maybe that would have taken them a little bit by surprise. You know that Kyle Oxley is going to be coming in and doing all the short yardage stuff and that Kai can kind of run a whole bunch of different types of plays from that short yardage package, and they're not afraid to keep him in on first down to kind of change things up. So I think that the Stampeders' defense has a little bit more of a look, and I'd expect them to with another strong showing. And then I think Jake Mayer, like there are some things that Dave Dickinson said, just kind of threw the team off a little bit uh, offensively in the first half. We saw them go two and out on three straight drives. And then the next drive, it was two plays and then an interception for Jake Mayer. So it wasn't a, um, a real confident feeling going into halftime as far as the offense went. But then Jake Mayer comes out, solid first drive. It gets stalled. They have to punt. But then it was a two and out for Edmonton. And then Mayer came back, went six for six on the next drive, threw a touchdown, hit a two-point convert. And then it was the punt block, and then the Stampeders were off and running. So I think he'll have some confidence going into this game, and I wonder if it takes them as long as it did last week, or I guess even earlier this week on Monday, I wonder if it takes them as long as it did last game to kind of get the offense started. Matt, appreciate it. Uh, Stamps and Elks wrap up their season series uh, Saturday night, and then you get set for uh, another home-and-home this time with the mm-hmm. BC Lions, so they'll have a week in between uh, getting set for that next game at McMahon. Thanks for the time, pal. Really appreciate it. Enjoy the game this weekend, eh? Yes, sir. Take it easy. See ya. There you go. Matty Rose, host of the big show in the morning and our Stampeders insider here on Sportsnet 960, the fan. Yes, the Stampeders and Elks ending off week 14 of CFL action tomorrow night. Part of a triple header of CFL action. you got a football fix that you need taken care of. Uh, this is the weekend for it. It starts tonight. BC and Montreal. Perhaps we see Vernon Adams get some action against his old team. And then tomorrow at noon, another different version of the Battle of Ontario than we've seen the last couple of weeks. We go Argos, Red Blacks at noon. 3 o'clock, Banjo Bowl from Winnipeg. Expecting a rowdy crowd there for the Riders and the Blue Bombers at 3 and then Elks Stampeders at 6 o'clock to end it off. And then you've got a Sunday full of NFL football. Really looking forward to it. Thanks to Matt. Uh, he joined us down the Atlas Pizza and Sports Bar guest hotline to chat some Stampeders. Uh, if you're looking for some Stamps coverage from Matt, you can catch him in the morning or on Twitter at MattRoseYYC. We'll take a break, come back on the other side. That'll do it for a quick hour of Sportsnet today. Pat Steinberg hits the airwaves next. We've got two hours of Flamestock coming your way next. Here on Sportsnet 960, The Fan.